everybody. Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. We are uh, in for another good one today. Uh, it's good to see some familiar faces already showing up. That's what's up. Very cool. Uh, the, the unofficial co-hosts of the show now in the chat <laughs> with uh, Rika and Shelly. Uh, what's happened, everyone? Welcome to uh, another episode of the Fred Hampton Inn and Suites. Um, interesting topic today that I've been looking into a lot. Uh, we're kind of going to go into the, the legal aspects a little bit. Uh, on this one, it's going to be a little more law heavy, but don't uh, think that you need to know anything about, uh, you know, how s different laws work and how, you know, what the particulars are for these different uh, privacy concerns or anything, because it's all really just made up. Uh, none of it really matters, but the particulars sort of do play a role here in trying to understand the topic of today, which is trauma. Uh and specifically how companies are now uh, profiting off of people's trauma, people's uh, mental health crisis, uh, the lack of access to uh, mental health professionals that people have in a for-profit healthcare system, and, uh, you know, similar, similar topics. So... Let's just give the basic overview of, of what I'm talking about in particular here. So if, if you have any familiarity with this little place called America, uh, then you also understand that things are not going great. <laughs> there are a lot of people who are struggling with uh, mental health issues, especially in wake of the pandemic. Something like uh, a lot of polls show somewhere near 40% of U.S. adults are struggling with either depression or anxiety in the post-pandemic era. And typically the way that those things would be treated would be through uh, a combination of, uh, for some people, drugs and then therapy. Uh, but both which are uh, considered healthcare in the United States in the for-profit system, you really don't have not everyone has access to uh, the resources needed for those mental health services. So given that gap in the services and the, the, the financial burden that would be put upon people to uh, participate in the for-profit healthcare industry and actually access mental health services, there've been a couple companies which have been coming in trying to say that they can fill the gap. Uh, this is something you see a lot. There will be something that is a a public issue, whether it's you know something like housing or uh, you know rent control or something of the like, and a usual uh, instead of the United States government actually doing anything to solve it, you have people come out of the woodwork from private industry to say that they can actually fill in those gaps. Uh, in this case, we're talking about two companies in particular. Uh, one is a for-profit and the other is a not-for-profit. 
those companies are BetterHelp and the Crisis Text Line. Now, there's been some reporting on both of these companies in the news, but not as much as what you would think. Uh, a little backstory on BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a company that provides online therapy sessions to uh, anyone who can pay for them. They say that they're gonna make those therapy sessions more affordable. You can have those therapy sessions on demand. There are a lot of really um, sort of uh, good takeaways from increasing people's access to online therapy. And they, uh, they have a mission statement that they would like to de-stigmatize uh, the uh, you know, de-stigmatize mental health and mental health treatment. So uh, if you watch any YouTube videos, if you're at all in the, I don't know, any kind of internet sphere, you've probably heard of BetterHelp. Uh, it sounds like it would be a great idea to sign up for these online therapy sessions that would be more affordable, that you wouldn't need health insurance to, uh, to qualify for. Uh, it, it seems like they would actually open up the accessibility of it. But the big problem here is that uh, there's been a lot of reporting and BetterHelp has confirmed some of this reporting that they collect and store your data uh, and share some of that data with third parties. So we're not just talking about, uh, you know, run of the mill data like your name and, uh, you know, your age or anything like that, but data about how often you are opening the BetterHelp app, uh, how often you are going to these therapy sessions. Uh, and they're sharing that data directly with third parties like Facebook. And Facebook is using that data from your own therapy sessions to, you know, do whatever they want, whether that will be uh, to market certain products to you, uh, to uh, just keep tabs on how often you're going to therapy sessions, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And usually in, so usually when you go to just, when you just go to a therapist uh, or when you get any kind of medical treatment in the United States, usually a lot of that information from your treatment records is already protected from disclosure to third parties without your consent. There's a law here called, uh, commonly referred to as HIPAA. That's the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. It was a law passed in 1996. And it's a federal law that generally required the creation of national standards to protect patient health information from being disclosed without the patient's consent or knowledge. So you would think that uh, these online therapy sessions that you would be taking with BetterHelp would already be protected by HIPAA, but that's not the case because a lot of the information that they uh, collect from you is not information that would be protected by HIPAA, despite the fact that they're purporting to be an online therapy provider. Uh, so there's certain information that they can still disclose because it's not protected by HIPAA. But then there's also the fact that... Uh, they companies like better health will take the data that they obtain from you uh anonymize that data and 
we can get into the particulars about how a lot of the times this data that they are quote unquote anonymizing isn't really made anonymous. But after they anonymize that data, they can still disclose that data to third parties. And third parties can, again, use that data to uh, either improve their own artificial intelligence in how they market products to you under to um, to understand different sort of market dynamics that come with the people who are participating in these mental health services to understand where they should be advertising other services for people who are participating in better help and the likes and et cetera. And that, that really becomes a problem, uh, a really big problem because the, the thing is, look, uh, I don't know if any of you are fortunate enough to be in therapy, but uh, therapy has been a huge, huge game changer in, in my life generally. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to have access to therapy for the last couple of years. The kind of shit that, well, the kind of trust that you have to have with a therapist and the kind of shit that I say in therapy is like, I, I love, I love y'all, but there's no fucking way you're ever going to know any of that. It, it has to be a space where you are able to safely be vulnerable to reveal things that you would otherwise not want to reveal uh, to, to allow yourself to really engage in the sort of, you know, necessary self-work and privacy that, uh, you know, is kind of necessary to even get through a lot of these really difficult issues. I mean, when we're talking about something like trauma in particular, uh, it's usually not, you know, we, it's usually not something you would want to be revealed to a lot of other people. Uh, and nor should it be really, uh, unless you are ready for that. And the, and the problem, a big problem with these online therapy sessions and these online sort of therapy providers like BetterHelp is that now they are taking a space that is supposed to be sacred, a space where in order for you to actually get the help that you need, uh, you have to be vulnerable and reveal things that you wouldn't want to reveal. And they're using that to, instead of, you know, respecting that that space is supposed to be sacred, they're trying to make money on the side by collecting data that you wouldn't share otherwise with other people and then selling whatever data that they can to third parties or informing third parties of pretty intimate details that you would not want other people to know. And these are third parties like Facebook, you know, which uh, is not exactly known as being a really good actor when it comes to collecting your data and uh, coming up with marketing campaigns towards you. And then the other company I want to talk about right now is a company called, uh, well, I guess before I move on to Crisis Text Line, uh, there's a really good article in, in Jezebel about uh, BetterHelp and the information that they collect and the information that they disseminate to third parties, including Facebook. Uh, the article is by Molly Osberg and Daruv Mehora, or Mah- Mahortra. And 
you can read the kind of information that they were able to see uh, Facebook was able to obtain from its partnership with BetterHelp or from or the kind of information that BetterHelp shared with Facebook. And that included things like informing Facebook of every time that you're in a session. So Facebook now knows the frequency and the the dates to which you're you're going to get therapy. Um, it could also include data as, uh, you know, data like, um, you know, what credit card you're using to make payments for certain medications. Uh, and you can imagine the kind of marketing that could be done off someone knowing your individual drug regimen, right? I get uh, advertisements all the time for uh, some kind of online ADHD pill subscriber. And I don't know if they just knew that I had ADHD or if they, if we all just have ADHD now and they just know that people want Adderall. I, I honestly don't know, but imagine if someone had your particular sort of drug regimen, uh, access to that information. Uh, that's a golden marketing opportunity. And it's one that I could see people really taking advantage of uh, and companies really taking advantage of. Uh, and the other company I want to talk about today before I kind of open up this discussion is Crisis Text Line. Now, Crisis Text Line has done some really good work in the past. I, uh, don't get me wrong. They are a, if you haven't heard of Crisis Text Line before, uh, they are basically a not-for-profit organization that provides free 24-7 anonymous crisis intervention via text messaging to the public. So what does that mean? It means that when someone is struggling with suicidal ideation and they don't want to call the suicide hotline or they just want to send a text, they can text crisis text line and immediately there's some kind of intervention. Intervention. There's um, you know text messages being exchanged between crisis text line and the person who texts them, uh, et cetera. The, the key things to look here is one, um, Anonymous crisis text intervention is a little bit misleading. And this is the way that the company describes itself. And I'm looking at a commentary that Crisis Text Line actually submitted to the Federal Communications Commission in Washington, D.C. back in February of 2020. And this was in response to uh, the Federal Communication Commission was... Uh, basically mulling over creating a, a text support hotline, a publicly funded uh, national suicide prevention lifeline, which also would have possibly included uh, text messaging. And Crisis Text Line actually uh, submitted their comments to the FCC in opposition to the creation of this text line, saying that we ask, one, the FCC not prematurely include texting in its proposal in the absence of a fuller record of the landscape, infrastructure required, and impact of doing so, or two, in the alternative, if the FCC does, does include texting in its proposal, to recommend leveraging and collaborating with private industry leaders like Crisis Text Line, rather than recommending the creation of duplicative government-run crisis texting services. Now, if you have the question that I had, uh, it's, okay, well then why would crisis text line, if their primary motivation here is to assist people in crisis, 
uh, of suicide, why would they be in op- opposition to the creation of more services that helped to intervene in people who were, you know, mulling over attempted suicide? Uh, it seems to me, at least, and people can argue about it, but it seems to me that you would want as many resources as possible, as many things available to people as possible to keep them from uh, committing suicide. And there's parts in this in the in these comments that Crisis Text Line submitted that are a little bit illuminating. Uh, and part of it is is you know one thing I want to. I want to talk about too is just, you know, crisis text line here in these comments is very aware of how these mental health crises and how trauma has a disproportionate effect on the people who are on the very bottom of capitalism, on the poor, on people from uh, minority communities, uh, people who are in rural communities, and I'll read you the direct a direct quote from their own uh, commentary submission. Quote, our texters skew young. 75% of our texters are under 25. Poor. 20% of our texters are from the poorest 10th percentile area codes. Rural. Texters from the, from the 7.5% of U.S. counties considered rural account for 9.8% of our volume. And diverse. Hispanic, 13% Black, 5.5% Native American. So they understand that a lot of the people who are actually using these services and who need access to this free texting service are are the same people who, you know, no surprise, are constantly needing more attention and constantly being um, forgotten uh, by a for-profit sort of capitalist system. And they reveal in this in this commentary that they collect some some pretty alarming data or some pretty private a lot of private data right here's another quote uh, they they talk about they want to honor the trust that texters place in us during their darkest moments 68% of our texters share something with us that they have never shared with anybody else we build and operate our service with data privacy as a top priority. And that's, you know, uh, I didn't read that as a direct quote, but that's the gist of what they're saying here. Um, and most of that was a direct quote. But here they, they have the information now. They have the data that 68% of the people who are texting them share something that they've never shared with anybody, anybody else. So imagine the vulnerability. Imagine the 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 information that they're collecting there and then saying that they build their service with data privacy as a top priority. Well, there was some reporting in Politico this year about the crisis tax line that revealed that the crisis tax line was sharing data from these conversations with a for-profit entity called Loris.ai. And that's a company that uses insights gleaned from the text line's millions of conversations to design customer service software. 
And if I remember correctly, let me check out the Politico reporting that's been done on this, because this has been really good reporting, too. Uh, a lot of it's by a guy named John Hendel. Uh, and this was back in January of 2022. And Alexandra Levine, who reported in January of 2022 as well. But the data that it shares with Loris AI is they say that this data was wholly anonymized, stripped of any details that could use, be used to identify people. But there were some distressing things revealed by this reporting. I believe the, the CEO, let me just make sure, because I don't want to speak out of turn here. Um, so in return for sharing the data with Loris AI, uh, Loris AI actually pledged to share some of its revenue with Crisis Text Line. So that's kind of a direct pay for play right there, right? Hey, you give us your data. We're going to give you, you, a non-for-profit company, give your data to a for-profit company. The for-profit company is now going to give you some kickback, some financial kickback. And that's what was happening, right? But here's the, the thing that really kind of freaked me out is that, and this is from, again, this is from Alexander, Alexandra Levine's reporting in Politico about this. The non-profit, and that's Crisis Text Line, also holds an ownership stake in the company, that would be Loris AI. And the two entities shared the same CEO for at least a year and a half. So these motherfuckers got the same people running the shit, at least for a year and a half. And look, that to have an ownership stake in the for-profit entity, when you are getting data from people in a fucking crisis who have nowhere else to turn to is not the way, my guy. That is not, to me, that's unacceptable. Now, I will say that after this reporting came out, Crisis Text Line did announce that it was going to end its data sharing relationship with the for-profit spinoff of Loris AI. So this reporting did result in some, you know, and at least that stopping. But I, I think, generally speaking, what I wanted to talk about today and what I really wanted to discuss, and again, maybe we don't need to get too much into the, the legal weeds of things, uh, because a lot of this, a lot of this hasn't been regulated. And it's not for want of trying by at least the FCC and the FTC, because they've actually proposed a lot of times uh, the need to update our privacy sharing policies or to implement omnibus privacy uh, protection laws at the federal level. But it hasn't been done. It hasn't been done. And I mean, I'm looking at reports where the FTC, I think the first time they, they talked about the need for this kind of regulation was back in 2000. And then again in 2009. And, and the FTC was calling a lot of this, they kind of saw this coming, right? Uh, some of the concerns that they had back in 2000 included uh, behavioral monitoring without consumers' knowledge, 
the aggregation of seemingly infinite data to produce profiles that were inherently intrusive, and discouraging valuable uses of the internet based on its perceived anonymity, such as sexuality and sexual health information. And this is from a really good law journal article published in, published in the University of Illinois Journal of Law and Technology in 2021, uh, their fall 2021 issue by uh, a JD candidate there uh, named Aaron Hussey. Uh, it might be Hussey, but I think it's Hussey. Uh, but she did a whole uh, a law journal report that I've been looking at. And to look at the degree to which the FTC, as, as, as late as 2020, a panel of, uh, you know, FTC commissioners urged Congress to pass federal data privacy legislation. And despite the urgent need for this, Congress chose not to act. And that the United States still has no privacy legislation or, you know, a, a, a omnibus privacy uh, legislation protecting just digital information shared online. Uh, and you, you start to wonder why that is. And I'm sure most of you can come to pretty easy conclusions, even, even without doing the amount of research that, uh, you know, myself or others have really done. And that's uh, that there are going to be... Sh- a lot of shortcomings to a self-regulation solution to this problem in a capitalist economy. And the BetterHelp example and the example of the crisis text line kind of shows you that. This is not... Look, the, uh, you know, what, what would the obvious solution be? What would the best solution be in a lot of ways? First, give people access to free mental health care. You know, pass some kind of Medicare for all. Uh, A universal health care program is desperately needed in the United States. But absent that, something has to be done about... Something has to be done from a regulatory standpoint that prevents this problem from getting worse, that prevents uh, healthcare companies, or not healthcare companies, but these, these uh, online providers of mental health services from disseminating, collecting and disseminating your data without your consent. And look, I've looked at the BetterHelp uh, privacy policy and I got to say a lot of the language in their privacy policy, even though they say that they're letting you know how they share and use your data, it's pretty confusing. And I find some of this, some of this, uh, some of their policy to be intentionally misleading if I'm calling it like it is, uh, from a contract standpoint, you know, I could read out individual, uh, parts of this. I mean, here's one. So this is from the BetterHelp privacy policy when they're talking about purposes for which information is disclosed to third parties. Uh, Information about you may be disclosed to third parties for one or more of the following purposes. So that right there, let's just stop there for a second. When we say one or more of the following purposes, does that mean it's only these following purposes? 
it, it's only one or multiple of these following purposes, does it mean that there are other purposes outside of these purposes to which that information could be disclosed to third parties? I would want some more clarification on that, but we'll continue. The first one they list is one for business purposes. Uh, Only as necessary for facilitating the counselor services, we may share a user's information with a counselor and a counselor's information with a user. We may also share your information with vendors and service providers, including our data hosting and data storage partners, analytics and vendors providing technology services and support, payment processing and data security. We may also share your information with professional advisors such as auditors, law firms, and accounting firms. Uh, already, I think that most people wouldn't think that that the scope of their signing up for this service would allow even that broad of a scope of how their data is being shared. Uh, and that's not even the worst one. For me, the worst purpose for which the data is disclosed to third parties is, uh, it says here, with affiliates within our corporate group, we may share your information with any subsidiaries or parent companies within our corporate group. I mean, let's take it back to the crisis text line example and the Loris AI example. Were those affiliates? Were those subsidiaries or parent companies? I don't think they were parent companies, but when you're sharing the same CEO, when you're sharing ownership stake in each other's companies, and one is a not-for-profit uh crisis text line that's trying to oppose basically a public option of the same thing. And the other is a for-profit company, which profits off of the data collected by your non-for-profit entity. I think that's a fucking problem. That's a problem. That's, and it's, it, it, it really just, I don't know. It really saddens me because people need this, you know, like this isn't just some fucking it's not just some product, right? It's like we're talking about people who could be about to make an, a, 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 an irreversible decision, who are in the, 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 the worst moments that they could possibly be in, who are in a real crisis. And somehow there still has to be money involved. Somehow they still, they still need to make some kind of profit off of it. They need to get something out of it. Instead of just, the, it's not enough just to help the person. And that's, that shit is so fucking dystopian to me, dude. It's so upsetting. You know, I don't know if you've ever lost anybody to suicide or anyone that you know. But like, and I, you know, I haven't lost anyone that I was too close with. But like, I know people I've worked with. People I've been acquaintances with, you just wake up and they're not, you know, they're not there. And you, I don't know how everyone feels, but I always feel if there's like, man, I wonder if there's something I could have fucking said or something I could have done or like some help that they could have had that they could have gotten. I know a guy who used to work for a suicide hotline who committed suicide, man. And it's like, It's just upsetting, you know, and 
I just don't think, look, I think if we're going to have a, like a society that actually respects and cares about human beings and their trauma and wants them to have resources to try to get better and get through that trauma and find a way to reinvest in their own lives and keep going and be productive and like happy people, you then get your fucking dollars and cents out of here, man. Get them the fuck out of here. I'm sorry, but human human life is more is more than just a product for you to sell. And that's that's why I wanted to cover this. Because I don't know how much coverage it's actually getting. Again, there has been some good coverage in Jezebel, in Politico. I think Breaking Points did a segment on this. Uh, I mean, this Aaron Husey, who is a law student or was a law student at the time that she published this journal article, found this to be a problem and good on her. Uh, But it's something we should really be it should be this kind of shit should be in people's faces, man, because I think this is a perfect example of how just unfettered or, or how the tendency for for profit entities is always going to be the profit first and never the humanity of the person. Just the dehumanizing effect of a system that has to extract as much value as it possibly can from people. And again, I just, well, I haven't said this yet, but look, there could be some legitimate reasons to collect data. Maybe there are, but fucking profiting is not one of them. I'm sorry. Like there could be legitimate reasons. Maybe you can increase the efficiency of some kind of care or something like that. But the disclosure of that data, the third parties for money is not one of the fucking legitimate reasons to be collecting data. Period. Like, I, I'm not here for it. That's not the wave. That's not the wave. But anyway, that's, that's what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. So that's all I have to say about it. I mean, I know that's a lot. I know there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot to mull over with that. Uh, but I'm happy to take your calls. And I, I'd love to hear what you have to say about it. And uh, I'll go ahead and take next caller. All right, Rico, what's happening, girl? Go ahead and unmute yourself. Hey, bud. Um, I'm doing good. I, I Thank you for covering this. I had no idea that um, the this this kind of information seemingly falls or is like not really well regulated or falling under the purview of HIPAA. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, or so I, I appreciate you kind of bringing that to my attention personally, because um, I just just didn't know that as someone who's interested in working in healthcare and becoming a physician. I I've, I'm baffled that 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 I mean, because I, I feel like with the whole turn in the pandemic, some of the things that were preventing um into some degree, the use of uh, remote uh, or telemedicine, telehealth services was the concerns around HIPAA and how they were going to keep information anonymous or not record, et cetera. So, um, so that's just shocking one. That's kind of like right. my initial reaction. Um, although I have to ad- admit, I, I kind of, I feel like a, a little 
torn around some of this stuff in so many different directions. Um, as someone who's uh, in my union organizing, I worked with um, medical interpreters who uh, were unionized at a hospital in uh, Minnesota. And so they're, they're, they were kind of like canaries in the coal mine for a lot of this telehealth stuff. And right. they're a, a lot of what their services are, are co- often contracted out by um, hospitals, uh, you know, be, for, for a variety of different reasons or justifications. And so remote interpreting has, has been kind of a trend for a lot of places and um, a lot of hospitals use remote interpretation, especially like those in rural settings, but, but urban areas that trend kind of, it was exacerbated um, uh, in particular by the pandemic. And so, um, but people were not, um, it was it, the huge issue for telehealth in that kind of setting or situation is that the communication tools are just abysmal. And you, you can imagine a variety of cases where being able to understand people is just um, almost impossible through remote situations and circumstances and um, and completely subpar compared to uh, doing like an in-person type of situation. And I think I think very similarly about um, a lot of telehealth broadly in that regard. Yeah. Um, that it that I think it's it's often used as this way of quote unquote creating access and it you know at face value it looks like that because there's this inherent assumption that because it's digital that means it can go everywhere um but the reality is is you need to have access to the internet and you need to have access to smartphone technology or some type of computer uh in order to use those sort of services which and, and this may be shocking to so many people, but a lot of people do not have computers still <laughs> or yeah. high speed internet or yeah. whatever the case is. So it's, it's, it's baffling to me that um, we have been so hoodwinked. I think it's, I think by this like telehealth movement, um, when it is so clearly um, an avenue for people to, you know, extract uh, pro- not only information from people, uh, because that's typically how these kind of apps generate revenue is, is and aren't able to charge people is be- they follow the, the Facebook model, right? Right. But, but also the, um, you know, the, the thing is too, is, is that in, I'm sure the working conditions for people who work for these apps and I'm, I'd be very curious to hear more about like the counselors perspectives that participate in better health or people on the crisis hotline. You mentioned someone who committed suicide, who worked for um, a crisis hotline. Right. And I know from the medical interpreters, their working conditions are abysmal, are abysmal when it comes to this kind of um, uh, telehealth crap. Um, yeah. So, so I think I think I, honestly, and, and I think I've said in, in other spaces, like I'm I'm like a, um, a, a not a luddite, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I love technology, but honest, honestly, yeah. this there is there's healthcare. One of the most meaningful pieces of healthcare is being able to receive physical care or having some type of in person encounter with someone 
um, period, right? In, including mental health services. So I'm, so I, I don't want to throw baby out with the bathwater necessarily because I, I see like I, I used a therapy service and did some remote therapy um, during the pandemic. And it, it was helpful when you weren't able to do it, but we have to recognize that it is not, it is not optimal care and it should be treated quite frankly as like, um, like a last resort, right? Like this should be like for emergency only get, you know, press the red button kind of situations. Um, right. A hundred percent, you know? So, I mean, that was, that was like one of those initial reactions in that I think, I think it's just, a, I think this, um, tell the, the things that we're seeing is just like, yeah, there, it's so easy for people to extract, um, wealth and value from people's lives through these digital formats. Um, and we should be pressing really hard against, uh, not only just the misuse and abuse of our information without our consent, uh, or without our explicit consent, right? Because of course, you know, you sign up on the app and then they'll say, oh, you, you, you know, you like sign, you click the little check boxes saying that you agree to terms and conditions, right? Right, right, exactly. <laughs> it's, like, it's like super fine print, you know? And you're like, right. okay. Um, but I feel like, I, you know, I just feel like we also, not only do we need to be advocating for a healthcare system that is free at point of service for everyone, um, where our data is not abused and used like this, but we should be also advocating for um, more for for in-person care. Like we really should be advocating for it. Like access to me means there are more people who are able to provide care for more people in real real life engagement with them in real time in front of like face-to-face encounters. I, you know, so that's just kind of, that was that was a comment slash perspective I wanted to throw out there. No, that's a that's a great comment, and I I agree with pretty much all of that. I mean, look, it would be hard to look at. You know, you could. Uh, there's no doubt that telehealth sort of therapy sessions have increased access in some way, right? Mm-hmm. To some mm-hmm. extent, for sure. But as you said, it's not the same quality of in person care and you know, when a lot of people, especially people who are dealing with suicidal ideation and everything and who are already isolated, it's not really ideal for them to be doing it virtually. And then there's also the the reality that, look, in a system that is all about increasing and maximizing profit, lowering costs and things like office spaces and Mm -hmm. things like, you know, the things that you would actually need for in-person care. I'm well aware of the cynical aspects of, uh, Tele or telehealth care as a way to uh, maximize profits as opposed to maximize the actual uh, impact of the care itself, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think the thing that really, you know, look, in an ideal world, we would just have, people would have access to therapists wherever they were, uh, quality sort of therapists and quality care, they would just be able to receive it. But mm-hmm. I do think, you know, given the that we're definitely not in an ideal world right now, yeah, uh, and given that there are a lot of people who don't have access either in in you know without telehealth, that it is probably 
if there were like an actual pure treatment element of this, um, you know, giving people access to telehealth as an alternative to nothing would be better. Uh, yeah. And, yeah, and I agree. you know, where I really get caught up and what really, what really upsets me is that while they're taking this cost saving measure of telehealth, instead of using it as an opportunity to, you know, increase people's access to healthcare and, and as an opportunity to actually maximize the human utility of it, right. To, to affect as many lives as possible, to help as many people as possible, or to, to, to use it in that way. It's, it's being used as a, as a profit generating tool. And what I worry about is that if it's more profitable to do telehealth, if it's more profitable because of the data that you get from telehealth, then not only are you saving money from getting rid of your office space, but you're making money off of the data of turning your patient into a product. It's going to be a, it's going to be a, it's going to end up being shittier and shittier care and less, and there's going to start being pushed more and more therapists are going to be pushed away from in-person meetings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the care is going to suffer just because the profit is there, you know, and that's, I, I, it just, every time with, with these conversations with, you know, people who are either libertarians or people who are always about the free market, right? Like, yeah. You know, first of all, free market is, it's not free, especially not our free market. It's not free at all. But second, you have to understand that some things have value that are greater than the monetary value that they could create. And that profit itself cannot tell you how, like, useful or valuable or worthwhile something is, you know? Like, being, being a really good, like, friend or parent or having a building, cultivating a good community isn't always profitable, nor should it be. You know, it'd be weird if all of my friendships were just based off of like how much money they could give me. That would be really shitty. But like, when you look at the actual things that make life worthwhile and give it a lot of meaning and give it a lot of, uh, you know, like the human spirit gives the human spirit value. uh, They don't track with those those monetary factors and therapy to me is something that has given me a lot of, a lot of value. It's really helped me confront a lot of, you know, my own traumas and like, yeah, uh, to, to become a better person and become a, a less, uh, you know, a less volatile one too. Uh, and that has to, that has to be the goal here. Uh, I, but I think you're right on with like the, the the problem with a lot of these telehealth sort of providers to begin with, like or your skepticism towards them to begin with, I think is is right on the money. Yeah, I I, I mean I, I also wanted to say like I I I don't I think it's helpful to right gather information that can be used right um, to help us better understand trends. Um, demographic trends, um, you know, what's, you know, things that can be helpful for improving services, et cetera. Like, you know, there's, um, you know, the physicians, a lot of the, what they did when we were yeah. organizing around the interpreters issues around in-person care, increasing in-person care was they, 
went, you know, they tracked information in their department about like the quality of care and patients' reactions to things like, right. And, the, and so they ended up using that information to um, come up with basically evidence and to make demands to the administrators, like, you know, this, this is what patients are saying, and this is how it's impacting our work. And this is, you know, they, they, you know, drilled down on it. And, and, and then in that way, we were able to hold people accountable for improving or changing their policies. And so to that end, I do think it can be really, really helpful to gather information um, about how patients are accessing or using any type of healthcare service. I, I think along with there has to be like an, a, an update to the HIPAA or like an addendum or some other type of law that's passed that where basically you can't, pro, that would prohibit profiting off yeah. of the use of that information and yeah. directing that, you know, that so that we're not, it, it takes away that, like you said, that incentive yeah. to turn something that shouldn't be uh, a underscored by for-profit incentives and i you know i i i think what this the the struggle is is like you know the solution as you have said in in many cases is going toward a medicare for all system that would remove that for-profit incentive right and i think in the interim right we people who are providing services still need to be able to um, make money, you know, to live. Right. right. And exactly. yeah. so, so I think that the, the, the problem here, right. Is it is very, I can imagine it would be very incentivizing for many therapists or many, any healthcare worker who provides services to patients and are contracting their services. Um, they could, maximize their ability to engage with people and make money also right by seeing more people at a greater distance right or whatever so i can see how like on one hand you know i'm I'm like oh like screw all this like telehealth stuff and then on the other hand i'm like well until we're until we're getting this like medicare for all system i really am i really want to support at providers who um, get, you know, figuring out ways to use it to help them be able to make a living and and and, and reach and provide care for people, you know, I, I so I feel I feel very conflicted, very very conflicted. I mean, I I feel very I should say I feel really clear about my criticisms and critiques and ultimate like policy goals and aspirations around stuff like this, but I it it feels like when you're so in, uh, just to bring it back to something to the in-person interpretation and i know it's not mental health related but it just feels so so connected right when we were organizing there were certainly workers who didn't want to support increasing more in-person in- interpretation because they liked the benefits of being able to provide remote interpretation from home you right. know from their own home and right. not having to risk being exposed to um the coronavirus at the time right and sure right like so so and being able to manage you know because when you're able to work from home if you have ever had that opportunity which i fully have 
um, you, you manage your time differently and you're able to like, not just work 24 seven, you can take care of other things. Right. So I think, I don't know, there's, there's a piece of me that feels very, very torn on that end of it. Right. Like knowing that there are these greedy grubby hands out here who are trying to extract again and capitalize off of, um, innovative things and vulnerable circumstances and inequality to be frank yeah 100%. But, but really people also benefit in in terms of in, in in some cases right in terms of like the, how it can change their working conditions or provide access so i don't know i but i did want to provide like i i think in this is at least part of that broader trend of telehealth and um I, I, w- I wish people would, in general, log off the goddamn internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think we're past it's, that it's, point. I, I, I think we're kind of screwed at this point. Know. You know, like half of my mind is just fucking memes at this point, Rika. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like my left brain is just replaced by SpongeBob memes. Um, but yeah, I want to get Shelly in here. I'm going to go ahead and um, invite you to speak, though, if you'd like to stick around and. Uh, just in case you have any other insights or anything in here. So I'll go ahead and bring you up. Okay, cool. And we'll go ahead and, uh, I said, go ahead and, uh, take Shelly. Shelly, what's up? Go ahead and unmute yourself. Hey, awesome. This is, this is awesome. (laughs) Oh, great. Thanks. What's up, Shelly? Man, I'm doing great. I just went out of town for a couple of days with my boyfriend and I'm just catching up on everything. (laughs) That's happening online. Yeah, there's there's a lot. <laughs> I mean, there's always a lot that's online for you. You know, like I don't, I there's so much shit I don't want to pay attention to, but I kind of just log off, bide. I know, off. I know. I'm honestly, I'm 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 thinking about deleting Twitter and just like getting out of here. Like it's just whatever. I'll keep the call in. I'll keep doing this every week, and I'm gonna go back to reading books and just like having a life. You know? Yes, yes. I'm here for it. I, yeah. I still do make time for books, luckily. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I can't ever get rid of them. But, you know, Rika, there, I think kind of the dichotomy that you're sort of caught between, because, you know, I do the same thing. It's, well, you know, mm-hmm. this data can be used for, like, really, really important things. Like, uh, but then at the same time, you take the reverse, and if it's used for profit or if it's used to enhance um, policing and surveillance, then yeah, that part. Yeah. Because yeah, if we're totally. if, if you have like these these kind of psychos that are calling people like groomers and all that stuff, mm-hmm. if they somehow detect pre-gay, pre, you know, whatever, I, I like that's the type of stuff that really creeps me out about it. Yeah. Purposes. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's tough. It's yeah, tough. Totally. I, I, but yeah. the whole well, thing until... is, is it's what, like, the thing with data collection is it can be really useful if the intentions are good and it just seems like under our current structure, the only intentions we have are bad. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think to me, like, you data collection obviously has its its uses. It's It's impossible to really 
say that it doesn't. But it's, you know, and the same way the Internet has a lot of its uses and, uh, you know, there were a lot more uh, productive uses of the Internet before memes. And now it's just memes and a lot of angry people. But but, you know, I, I do think that part of the incentives that I'm always worried about and that I really can't get past are the incentives of, of profit generation, profit generation, profit generation, because it is that that to me has had such a corrupting force on so many different industries on so many different sort of, you know, motivations on in, in so many ways. Uh, and if data is going to be collected and profit is still without actual hard regulation, um, you know, if data is still collected and, and profit is still the incentive for a company and they're unregulated and they can perhaps get away with selling some of this data to increase profits, they are going to do it, right? Right. It's, right. It is within the structure yeah. of the incentives for that company to do that. And it's, that's where I have a huge, you know, that's where it's a huge issue. And, mm-hmm. you know, part of me, when I'm reading this, this commentary before the Federal um, Communications Commission from Crisis Text Line, who's going here and testifying before this commission and talking about how we oppose basically the creation of another public text hotline for suicidal people because we already have one and we should be involved in it. Uh, you know, part of me is, part of me is just wondering like, why would they oppose that? Is it because, and, and it makes a lot more sense to me that they would oppose it because they have this kind of information that, you know, when 68% of people who text you tell you something they've never shared with anyone and then you can potentially share that information with your for-profit affiliate. Like you don't want to lose that. So even like the, I think what really like irks me is when people are taking these different like legal positions or these different stances on issues and trying to make it into an actual debate or trying to put forth something that seems like a legitimate concern. When really the concern to me, when I read between the lines here is we don't want to lose our cash cow. We don't. Mm-hmm. And, and when, and there's something so dark to me about that fear of losing your cash cow yeah. overriding the fear of losing the person on the other line who's texting you, you know, yeah. like there's something very dark to me about, about that in particular, which is why I focused on these companies, uh, you know, for today's episode, because I, I do think that I really, you know, I, I, I really do think that, uh, if people are, are disconnected enough within these companies, it's not even like the people in the companies who are like evil or anything. It's like the company structure is always, is always going to be curtailed and moved and, and trending towards this sort of for-profit, uh, model that dehumanizes. Yeah, and that's, and that's, that's more of what I was kind of talking about. Like, I was talking yeah. about the superstructure is that it will always be used for bad, but that doesn't mean that like every mm-hmm. like every single therapist that works for that company 
like harbors you know, those sort of ambitions that's a hundred percent right hundred right. yeah yeah you, you know i have nothing against even service. the individual you said what Shelley? i said it's probably still the helpful service yeah, yeah. that's I, I think that's where the tension comes for me is that i you know I, i'll see these ads for better help and you know on whatever youtube video um and i know that someone is probably going to use that service and i hope that they can use it and benefit from it but i it when when trust is such a necessary element of a successful sort of therapy mm -hmm. situation mm -hmm. i you you know you're always at least me maybe because i'm you know like a fucking internet boy or whatever but like you i always worry about the kinds of narratives that really can black pill someone you know yeah. that can really make them super nihilistic and super sort of detached and hopeless and when i think of someone learning that even their attempt to get help is them becoming a product of some kind that that worries me because that's that's one of the most dystopian things i can i can think of honestly yeah um it's yeah it it is dystopian, you know? and then it kind of makes you think well if the same people that are going to be pushing for these things are going to be paying off politicians like and then we just right go back in the cycle yeah yeah what do we yep. do and it and it yeah. feels like you go down like it just feels like you just go down like a really dark rabbit hole with it but oh yeah there, there's some I, i'm i've been down that rabbit hole and i'll tell you uh not a lot of friendly rabbits down there no. yeah right? okay. the, are, all right guys let's take over the world what do we do no i'm just kidding right so <laughs> well i i i don't know if i have a well i kind of have a prescription but i i feel like I, I I feel like for the whole like avoiding the rabbit hole thing. I mean, there it, personally in my life, I you just I, me. I don't know. I've had to just accept a level of real ass cynicism about the world. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, like you just kind of have to <laughs> embrace it. You're like, yep, yep. You just this is the world that we live in, and but I think what what kind of protects me personally from like it overriding my life is being involved like the real ass relationships i have with real real people in my life where we're and finding meaning and joy and and also change and transformation in those spaces where we're like actually pushing and winning and uh, even if it's like small scale like oh my god we got the uh, work policy to change and x you know x by dz to be placed you know what i mean like i think right that that but one thing shelly you said that i wanted to go back to uh -huh. that is so important and and I feel like it goes so beautifully or or horribly, however you might view it, with what's going on with the gun control debates right now, which is around the um, policing and surveillance of people um, through this type of stuff as well, right? So like, right. yeah, we've seen we've seen a lot of rhetoric around. And why do you even kind of frame this in your description that we're in a mental health crisis in, in America? 100%. And certainly, we, and I think certainly we are. And, and I think 
there needs to personally, there probably needs to be more drilling down on that in terms of what we mean by that, right? I think in the case of, excuse me, the gun situation right now that we're finding ourselves in with all these mass shootings, I, there, you can certainly say there is a mental health crisis for sure. I also wonder to what degree, I feel like we, we say some people have mental health crises and we say some people don't, right? We say people who are shipped abroad, who are forced to kill people abroad um, for not even our benefit in our society, they're not, they're not in a mental health crisis. They're soldiers, but people yeah, they're fine. Who, they're doing yeah, okay. They're, and they're fine, but they, actually, though they do come back with PTSD, actually, right? I think the term you're looking for is heroes. Right. Yes. Yes. Shelly. Yes. Okay. So, and, and then, but then we, you know, when we see, and to be clear, I think what the mass shooter did is absolutely, a, you know, horrific um, in, in Ovalde particular, but also before that in um, Buffalo, like, right. Like, obviously this is, I shouldn't have to qualify that, but, you know, but, but we somehow we see these people and then we immediately pathologize them as if, it's impossible for rational people to want to kill people, right? And I think, so then the solutions that are coming up and you see this in our discourse right now is, you know, I think it, it would, this was just on the Hill. I, the New York um, governor was like, we're going to demand or push social media basically to surveil more people to um, find the comments where that could be suspicious of people uh, who might have nefarious um, intentions and or plans to kill people. Now, I do think that makes, on some level, that I can see how that makes sense. But when we expand the surveillance state like that, we and we say, yeah, go after people who are planning to kill people or who, who even whiff or think about it or flirt with the idea about it, right? I, In my mind, maybe this is because I'm, you know, up on the history of like things like COINTELPRO and, you know, Puerto Rican revolutionaries and, you know, et cetera, like they, they could, they just, I feel like they just, like people could be, they could easily extend that idea of like pathologizing people or the excuse could become a cover to actually target people who are political dissidents and, or who might espouse a revolutionary politics. And so I'm, I don't know, I'm curious, like when we're talking about like these apparatuses for expanding mental health care, the for-profit motives, I'm also deeply concerned about what you're, what you were bringing up, Shelley, the surveillance state and the policing that can be involved. And are we really okay with that potential that like, I mean, I just, I'm just curious what you all think about that. Yeah, do you mean curious with that potential from like the state owning that power rather than yeah, corporations? Yeah, and, and corporations and corporations. Yeah. Oh, I, I'm not comfortable <laughs> either way, a hundred percent. Like, it's it's uncomfortable, but I think you know, at least from my from my standpoint, I'd, I'd like to hear what Shelley has to say on this. But uh, God, it's there's something more nefarious to some extent about 
there being also not just a motive of like stopping terrorism or stopping whatever bullshit the state wants to call it, but there's something extra nefarious too about also having that motive, having the additional motive of having to generate profit from it too. Um, And, you know, to some extent, the state already has a lot of this information, man. Like, I, I, like, uh, shit, like the, the, the degree to which you can actually contact the FBI and ask for your file. Have either of you ever done that? No, and I don't so want to. <laughs> you, you, you actually have a right to do it, right? Okay. You can actually okay. write the FBI and say, hey, guys, I was just wondering what you have on me, right? <laughs> and they'll send you a fucking file back, and they'll be like, oh, yeah, you're a dirty little piece of shit commie, and we know. We know. <laughs> We know everything about you, all right? We know your dog's name. We know the fucking, you know, the every goddamn thing. It's it's actually pretty alarming, the amount of shit they know. Um, but that information is kind of already there, you know? And it's kind of, you know, I don't know. Like, it's... Right. It, okay. yes. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay, can you tell me all the bad shit that I've done? Like, according to you? Tell me how bad you think I am? So then if they go, oh, well, we didn't have a file on you, but we do now. (laughs) Oh, they got a file on everybody. Yeah, that's kind of the whole thing. Like, yeah. That's kind of what I I talk about whenever I talk about, like, kind of like the myth of, like, the whole authoritarianism thing. Like, Like, every government's authoritarian, it's just Right. They utilize the government's power, and is it for corporations or is it for people? They're going to have to wield the authority, and so we have a powerful state, and it's in the hands of a bunch of corrupt billionaires, and all the data flows to them, and so they have control over the levels of power. And yeah, I mean, I guess my my point my point is not so much that it's it's there i mean obviously it's there so much as it is that we're and and thank y'all are helping me clarify what my reaction is really about um that we are further utilizing mental health as a screen for expanding the surveillance state does that make sense And, and being and being able to use like because what's What's going to stop people from saying, as they already do, right? They already characterize a lot of some leftist activism and activities as being violent terrorism, right? What's to just then stop them from saying, oh, you're, uh, you're also delusional and or schizophrenic, whatever the mental health category might be, pathologize them, basically. And then, and, you know, and- do whatever they want. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, like, it's not beyond me to see people, like, doing that, you know, especially when you have, 
you know, if you're having health care, like, you know, this mental health uh, app that's being used and is tracking like, oh, this is what this person's looking at. And this is what this person's clicking on. Like that stuff yeah. is already used in counterterrorism efforts. Yeah. Like it really I, is. It's, it's, and, and I mean, if we really want to go into kind of the, the subversiveness of access to sort of, you know, individual mental health therapy sessions being in the hands of either the government or, Yes. You know, if we really want to get into that, I mean, like what happens, you know, what happens if someone's got all kinds of like weird fantasies and shit like that, you know, like exactly we get real close to a place where it's all like thought, thought crime. Right. Yes. And and that to me is first, like, like saying it and doing it are two different things. Right. Uh, The immortal James Brown taught us that and thinking it and saying it are two very different things. Uh, and, you know, like, to act like nobody has, like, no, like uh, there's probably one person who's never had fucked up thoughts ever, and his name was Mr. Fred Rogers, right? He's probably the only person <laughs> who never had any thought crimes in there, just a heart of pure gold. But, like, that's, it's, it's, it's difficult to, that is a really interesting point rika because it's it's well shelly brought it up i'm just i'm just going there i'm just oh for real okay shelly yeah, yeah, yeah my bad my bad <laughs> okay i gotta give credit where it's due though you gotta give credit so no, um threw it up and, nailed, and nailed it exactly i was like hey this is what how it feels creepy and then we drilled down <laughs> yeah 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 well you know I, I, I think even that still, like, look, it's uncomfortable for anyone to have that information, right? But I do think it's particularly, the more motivations you add in between as to, uh, you know, to take away from the primary motivation of actually giving someone health care, of just directly providing for their best interests, I think you 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 complicate things more and you, you create more opportunities for that data to be used for other things. Right. And it's one of the reasons why I think that would be an interesting episode to have Shelly about like authoritarianism, because I know one of these days, Mm -hmm. Mm Shelly, one of these days, Shelly, I'm going to call you, I'm going to call you. We're going to, I'm going to try to talk about China. You're going to try to convince me that I should, give my life to our Lord and Savior Zhao Jinping or whatever the fuck, <laughs> you know, you're going to put, put me in a little brown shirt and put a little, put whatever I'm going to be going over there and shit. But like you, like I, one of these days I would actually like to have a, a good long conversation and maybe an episode of the podcast about like, cause I know, you know, about China, about some of this other stuff. Cause I know you'd be stomping for them. I know you'd be stomping. So, uh, Attacking Vietnam, I would be defending them. If we were attacking Cuba, I would be defending them. Any, I, I'm one of the defenders of already existing socialism. So that of what? China calls itself socialist, so, and I can see the socialism in it, so I defend it. And it, but I would do it for any country that was defending a socialist project. I I would be interested in it too, more as I think this is. It is a site of natural tension between anarchists and communists 
like oh, that 100%. is like it, that is 100%. like the the theoretical nerdy part anarcho in me is like yeah that's the com- that's a conversation that is a yeah. conversation it's a hell of a conversation i think that that might be one of these but i'm gonna have to have a few drinks in me before i have that conversation <laughs> <laughs> i feel like Okay, yeah, sounds good. Thanks for calling in, Shelly. Mm-hmm. Bye, guys. Thanks, Shelly. All, right. All right, bye. Bye, girl. All right, Amanda. Thanks for calling in. Go ahead and uh, unmute yourself. Hi, how are you doing this afternoon? Pretty good. Pretty good. How are you? This evening. I'm doing pretty good. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, sound great. Um, one of the things during the this... I didn't... I. I checked in a little bit late this this episode, but one of the things that um, I was thinking as you were having the conversation among the three of you is is with all of the surveillance. I mean, nobody's talking about innocent till proven guilty. If we're just going to mm-hmm. keep collecting mm-hmm. information, they could be collecting information that on stuff that I'm doing that today is not illegal. But now they have all of the servers with this information on it, and yeah. now it's illegal. And then they can go and search if they decide I'm an enemy. They can just go through search through all their databases for something that makes me look bad. Yeah, that's such a fantastic point, Amanda. And honestly, this is going to be maybe this just becomes like a instead of a trauma podcast, it becomes a drama <laughs> podcast because it's, it's going to be a little bit, a little bit one of my hot takes. But part of the reason I really did not fuck with that Amber Heard, Johnny Depp trial is yeah. exactly because of some of that shit. Like some of the messy shit that happens in a bad relationship between two mm-hmm. people who are obviously both acting a fool. Mm-hmm. Uh, all that, like every little text message, every little fight being played out in a public court where it has no business being, really. I get it's a defamation trial. I understand there are allegations of lies and shit. But now I got to talk about old girl taking a shit in your bed. Yeah, it mm-hmm. became something else for sure. Like, it became something else for sure. You know, yeah. and then I'm sitting there, <laughs> yeah. I'm sitting there yeah. talking about, like, you know, yeah. like, well, I've been bad in relationships, but at least I never shit in my partner's bed. You know, and, like, it's like, it's it's that sort of, the problem with trauma. that. I know, on, girl, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, it's so, let yeah. someone shit in my bed, see what happens. But, <laughs> but you know, when you, but Amanda, you bring, I mean, the thing is, this is a really good, a really great point for multiple reasons, because one, we already know that the collection of this data and the collection of data generally has made all of these companies way more susceptible to cybersecurity breaches where your social security number gets leaked, your bank account number gets leaked. Usually, you know, we've seen all kinds of these things happen. We we saw the Equifax uh, Mm -hmm. situation happen back when, which was like millions or hundreds of millions of people's fucking social security numbers being leaked. Imagine now hundreds of millions of like your fucking therapy sessions being reached, leaked. Can Uh you imagine? Can you imagine like me yes. talk about my daddy issues and everyone's like fucking reading that like yeah c- come yes. on you think that how do you think that's gonna do for our suicide numbers you think that's gonna right. be a good thing you know right. like right. we are number one we're we yeah, <laughs> yeah baby <laughs> let's go america 
it's I love my country, but it's that's why I criticize it. I yeah, want it to right. be a better country. That's well, how I, I mean, feel too. By in a minute, I'm here. This, you know, you got me thinking about too, um, with the Roe v. Wade decision down the pipe, right? Like, uh-huh. yes. and all the states that are going to criminalize it, right? Like, right again, too. Like, so are we under the guise? I think with this whole mental health framing of you know expanding the surveillance and policing state you know what's mm-hmm. to stop them from using that and having the legal basis to say oh also this activity is criminal and trying to go after you know you know people who are seeking abortion like i'm 100 you know that's that's the part too where i'm like y'all y'all i don't think we're ready for that we're not so ready I, for that I, I'll tell you this. This is how that would go down. That's a really great point. But this is how it would go down. So for abortions that had already happened while it was legal, there's there there's if that information leaked, say you told your therapist that you had had an abortion or your health records leaked that you had had an abortion in the past, uh, they're going to have a hard time criminalizing past behavior, right? There's yeah. a whole bunch of stuff that like, you know, if it was legal when you did it, then it doesn't matter. It's unconstitutional to charge someone retro, you know, retroactively. You can't charge someone retroactively. But for people who make those kinds of revelations in those records after mm-hmm. abortions made illegal and that information gets leaked and then they find out that you had an abortion when you weren't supposed to, it's fair game. They're coming after you. They can't. Right. And they will. And that's... Yeah. Like, and the other huh? thing, but the yeah. other side of it is also, I'm sorry to, I'm sorry to interrupt, but no, the please. other, the, no, the other side of that is that if, it, even if it's not that they're going backwards, cause obviously you pass a law and something that wasn't illegal before that date that you did before that date, but, mm-hmm. but the amount of data that's getting collected, whether it's by private companies or the government they can put together quite a story about you that is That's not right. even close to the truth. Yeah, and they could right. convict you on a crime that didn't even happen. Exactly. This is, this is part of the, the other thing that I wanted to raise is, uh, you know, you bring up the going and uh, requesting your FBI file and using FOIA. Not all of that is good, but you can't do that against these private companies or like even the credit right. reporting agencies. Yeah, you need to right. do who that. have all this information. You actually got to sue them for something, and then you got to subpoena them, right? Which so means you, you have to have money to do it. That's right. Uh, amen. Amen. Right. Uh-huh. So you can protect yourself against government over overreach by going and bitching at your city council person or your congressperson, or I mean. A, a, Hopefully you can get some relief that way, but there is a, there is a process you can engage in to try and get some relief if you, if you're wronged or whatever with a company like better health, for example, what Mm -hmm. relief do you have if you don't have a lawyer on your side? Right. You can pray. Yeah. Well, and, and you can put stuff into the news and then you can hope they can hope that the, that the company gets some bad reputation and goes downhill. I mean, there's, there's lots of tactics you can take, but, but the most direct way, the most direct organization you could deal with would be the government. And it would be way better. I, in terms of comfort level, at least I could know what they have. 
Yeah. Right. You know, I am curious, though, because this isn't something I've really thought about, but you you kind of, your comments kind of made me think of this, Amanda, but the, you know, to the extent that there are places like China or places where the government is much more uh, powerful in a way of like, uh, you know, there aren't any sort of corporate uh, corporations that, you know, there's not like corporations here that can challenge the government, but there are corporations and big sort of other private entities which can make the government think before passing legislation or pay them to pass certain legislation or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Do we know if, if in those countries where the government has like that much power, are there, are there, do we know anything about the extent to which those processes of, you know, filing a grievance or getting your records, do we know anything about the extent to which those processes become more difficult, the more powerful the government becomes, right? Because like, and and I I really don't know either. And that's why I'd want to know because, you know, part of the, at least an argument that I've heard made about privatization generally is that it's like a, it could be a soft power check to the government itself. I think a lot of that is kind okay. of bullshit, right? I know, yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, okay. okay. <laughs> well, the government's not holding themselves accountable right now. They d- right, Nobody's right. going down for anything right now. Right, Everybody's right, got qualified right. immunity because they're in office, which is right, all right. kinds of BS. And I speak from the position of I was an elected official for eight years. It's BS. Qualified immunity is BS. Yeah, it's pretty wild. We should, wild. We're governing ourselves. We should do a better job of it. So it's not an us and a them. Right. Because this right. is a this is all of our country, even the assholes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah. It's it belongs, supposed to belong to. It's supposed <laughs> to belong to the people who were here before, you know, white men yeah. and everybody else. But this country belongs to all of us, acknowledging that it's on stolen land. You know, mm-hmm. and that's that assholes and people who agree with us and people who don't agree with us. All of us don't want all of this shit to happen, but everybody makes it like if it's red, that's this. If it's blue, it's this. And if if you're yeah. not red or blue, then who the heck are you? And we don't care. That, yeah, that's exactly. not an attitude I particularly care for. <laughs> yeah. No, not, I'm, me neither. I'm, I'm curious now to, like, I mean, you got me thinking about how um, when we were, when we were mentioning we were talking about the Roe v. Wade issue too, because my understanding mm-hmm. is that Roe v. Wade, and I'm not a I'm not a lawyer nor a legal scholar, but my understanding is that Roe v. Wade is kind of like foundational to like as a privacy, right? Like this whole it's the whole basis of it is privacy, right? Correct. And, Correct. Um. So if we chip away at that, and you know, we'll have all these ramifications around other issues that were or other matters that were based on privacy i wonder how will that impact hipaa like and issues of hipaa and further around these the lack of regulation already that exists and will it exacerbate this issue um allowing people to continue to utilize more information more data um and to profit off of it i'm just curious if if y'all have any insight or might have thought about that. Ooh, I do. I do. Yeah. I get to use that law degree for a little bit. Okay. (laughs) So, so here's the general answer to your question is 
it won't impact HIPAA as much. Okay. But it has huge implications for privacy generally. Gotcha. So here's the basic gist of it. Roe v. Wade was foundational for finding that there was a right to privacy within the Constitution. Mm, okay, okay. So okay. whenever you have a constitutional protection, that's the largest amount of protection that you could have in the United States legally. Because okay. not even Congress can make a law that infringes on the rights guaranteed in the Constitution. Gotcha. So if, if Congress, for example, had made a law after Roe v. Wade that said... We get access to everyone's medical records and uh, private companies can distribute those medical records, something that had attacked your right to privacy, that law would have been able to be stricken because the right to privacy is constitutional as it's been interpreted. So they couldn't have made a law that would have infringed on your on your privacy in the Constitution, right? Um, if you have that constitutional protection or whatever. Right. And uh, I'll go ahead and mute Amanda real quick because she's either taking a, a, I don't know, doing something, but uh, bring her back up. But uh, anyways, if, if you have a right to privacy within the Constitution, that's the highest level of protection you can get. And Congress can't make laws that then infringe on that right to privacy. So that's step one. Uh, step two, though, is that Congress can make any other laws, right? So if they make a law that says you have a right to privacy, then as long as that doesn't infringe on a different part of the Constitution, then they can make that law. So HIPAA is a law that Congress has the authority to make that protects certain privacy rights in the healthcare field. Uh, it hasn't been challenged constitutionally. It's been sort of upheld. Uh, if it were challenged, I'm sure that uh, it would be upheld. I'm not sure if it's actually been challenged on a federal level or not, but point is that Congress can still make a law expanding a right to privacy. Like gotcha. Okay. So that can okay. stay stay up. But okay. without the constitutional right to privacy itself, it means that states can make laws infringing on that right to privacy too. Gotcha. So you gotcha. see what I'm gotcha. saying? Gotcha. So it's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. it's 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 like it's it's like that. But anyways I'll bring okay. Amanda back up in case she wants to say anything again. But Sorry about the noise. Yeah, um, no I was trying to find a pencil because I would, wanted to jot something down. At, and this is a bigger conversation, but something and, and I need to do some looking into um, about the Roe v. Wade and the new ruling and how it relates to the privacy. Because it would be a new case. This is a totally different off the subject. But but I'm, you got me thinking about the new case that's in front of the Supreme Court that would overturn Roe v. Wade. And right. what that has that case has to do with, I just wasn't paying very close attention to it. We we don't have to go into it right here, but the way yeah. that you explained it is helpful for me because it tells me there's some things I need to find out. Yeah, I actually did the first episode of this this podcast I did on that decision. Oh, um, really? Well, then yeah, I, I definitely yeah. will go it's, back and listen to that. Thank you. That's an excellent yeah, resource. Not, it's not as polished as the the, the later ones because I didn't have a Rika and a Shelly to help me keep the fucking shift going. <laughs> um, but, you know, the basic gist of it is that, uh, yeah, that right to privacy that was sort of read as an inherent part of the Constitution mm -hmm. was generally overturned, was, was, was seen. They said that that wasn't an original part of the Constitution. There is no right to privacy in the Constitution, and therefore 
uh, Roe v. Wade's reasoning was was wrong from the start. Now, the the implications that that has are pretty broad because there are several uh, cases that came after Roe v. Wade, which mm-hmm. rely on that same reasoning of right to privacy, namely mm. uh, Lawrence v. Texas, which yeah. was an, the anti-sodomy law, which oh, right, right, right. in 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 Texas, which basically made it illegal for two consenting uh, gay men to, or gay people to, right. you know, or whatever, like made it illegal to basically have anal in your own house, which is right. fucking ridiculous, right? Right. Um, but that was based on the same reasoning as the uh, the right to privacy that was found to be part of the Constitution in Roe v. Wade. And then mm. the Oglethorpe. Oglethorpe is the case that legalized gay marriage. Right. Mm, so mm. there, there is a real reality. Like I know people will chirp and say they're not going to attack gay marriage. They're not going to attack gay rights. The hell they but here, here's the thing. Mm. The whole, the reason those things exist mm-hmm. is because mm-hmm. of that right to privacy that's been read into the constitution and that mm-hmm. was established or, or really solidified in Roe v. Wade and then later in Planned Parenthood versus versus Casey. So uh, exactly what Rika was saying. The hell they won't. Like, mm-hmm. that's not how. That's not how it works. Especially when you have a the- <laughs> like a like a theocratic exactly. wing of people who don't yes. fucking care about like individual rights. They just care about some kind of weird dogmatic, you know, like spooky ghost shit where they don't want you to have sex. You know, well, that's what it comes you- down to. You know those Republican senators would still get their rent boys and have, have, <laughs> 100%. have their drugs. Too, 100%. So, you know. like, oh, hundred percent. The baddest, the baddest rent boys too. That's right. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, that I don't know if it's this one or the one that the ruling that came out that actual innocence isn't grounds for for overturning your conviction. Did you see that one? No, is that recent? Yes, what? this this session. What? I know. I can't tell you much more than a, than that, except Whoa. that it was a case where somebody was actually innocent, and that they went up to the Supreme Court, and either the Supreme Court, no, the Supreme Court heard it because they made a ruling on it because it was a big deal. Actual innocence is not a is not a grounds about? for another for another trial or something like that. Wow, wow. Well, then shit. Well, then actual wow. guilt isn't either. What the fuck I, are they talking I, about? Then if, I, if, yeah. if that's the situation, I know. then every every single situation should be jury, jury nullification. That's it. Right. Every single situation right. from now on should be the jury does not convict anybody ever again, and and it's, then see if they fucking shocking. change that shit. Are they out of their minds? Yes, they are. are they I think they're trying to. Ca- they must be trying to cause a revolution. Oh yeah, maybe oh, that yeah, is they what are. they're trying to do. Shit. Well, uh, come on, girl, January sixth. But I feel like. <laughs> 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 um, well, well know, I'm glad one. I wasn't for the practice run. You know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I have to say on that note, by your um. I like I like to think of these as facilitated conversations uh, because they're much more engaging than a podcast. But I, you have been doing stellar, like 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 you've just been improving and improving and improving and organizing this every episode. FYI, oh, so I just want to give you. kudos to you. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been it's been amazing. Aww, it's been amazing. Thank you. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, I, I, I like to think of them as facilitating conversations too, um, you know, more than, than a podcast. And I'm still trying to figure out the best way to do it and how to make it, you know, grow or if it needs to grow. Um, you know, if we're growing, that might be enough. But uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I enjoy doing them. And it's, uh, uh, were you going to say something else though before I cut you off? No, I well, okay. I think the thing that I I I feel like I wanted to say though is I I'm just you know we, you know the whole thing was about trauma being basically commodified um, for profit you know incentives and I I think there's no way we can truly escape that dynamic um, until we have a healthcare system that is free from that incentive and provided for all and is guaranteed as a right. Like there's just really no way around that. And, you know, another, another reason why we need Medicare for all the end. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I don't know how deeply we want to get into this too. And maybe this is a conversation for another day. Uh, And maybe that's where we'll end it. But the, there's an element of this question that I've been thinking about a lot from the standpoint of, you know, the commodification of like trauma through like Hollywood stories or like television or whatever, like this idea of uh, constantly taking people's pains or, or experiences or struggles and having to make them into, you know, a sort of three act structure to where we, someone becomes like the hero capitalist in the end or something, Uh you know, like the the Jay-Z story over and over again, when it's like, in a way that's kind of like to go through a lot of what a lot of people have gone through, like precious or something like that. Right. Like that story is fucked up. Like, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. Messed up. Like it's, it's wild. And then it's like, you know, if I or, or like Antoine Fisher, and I know Antoine Fisher Antoine wrote. Fisher. You know, I'm still standing. I'm still strong. You know, I get it, and I know that he wrote his own movie, which you know, kudos to him. He was the author of it. But part of me is like, this feels fucked up watching this dog. Like, oh, like there's there's some element of it too that I feel like, as long as they can make money off of like a a version of this that has to have the happy ending or has to have like, you know, the, 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 like this progressive arc or this arc that gets you to some place of like, we're all doing better. And we've, we've conquered the, the demons or our inner demons or whatever. I, I, there's part of it that to me feels a little gross at times. And maybe that's just because I'm, I'm so cynical nowadays about just about everything um, that it feels that way, but I don't, I don't know. There was an element of me that wanted to conquer that too. And honestly, I'll just, as long as my cards are on the table, the whole reason I came up with this topic too is I went on a fucking Bumble date. (laughs) 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 So I'm on this Bumble date at this fucking taco place and I'm just talking to this person and she just, she gets, she's like, there's clearly something that's like a little off, you know, I don't know if it's just like, she's nervous or something like that, but we're, we're talking and I start talking about like, 
you know, uh, I guess we got into a conversation about like psychedelics and stuff like that. And she was so like angry at me for talking about like some of the research around like mushrooms and stuff huh. like that with their therapy. And she was like, my therapy session, like I'm, I'm doing fine and everything's okay. And she started like, I, I had to trigger something and I was like, what the fuck is going huh. on here? But I just, I could see how much pain like she was in while it was happening. And she ended up just getting up and fucking leaving oh, from the table. Fine, we did not screen that bumble. I really did not. I totally did not. But like, I, what I realized is that I'm just like, damn, people are fucking out here hurting, dog. Like, yeah, yeah are, that's real. Like, that's real. she's out here hurting. Like, how did how did that create this situation of like where this was the response that felt like right better for her or like or like I, I don't know. And, and there was just part of me that just started thinking about it. Well, I'm sitting at this fucking taco place, finishing my tacos, like like, a, <laughs> like an idiot afterwards. But it's like, you know, I, I, and I'd always wanted to kind of like look into these services too. And I had already been like researching them for, for an article that I want to write, but it's just, you know, like it's, it's clear to me that there, and it's clear, I mean, to, to just about everybody that there's such a void and such a, a like a gap in the ability or th- the amount of access that we have to meaningful mental health care in this country. And, you know, when you bring up Uvalde and you bring up situations like that, too, I think that's that's absolutely part of it. Right. And and when I see these these like for profit solutions or these these private entity solutions that are trying to fill this gap or purporting to fill this gap or, or whatever. And I want to believe in them. I just get really nervous whenever you start looking into them and you realize that, Oh, so it's still about the money. Like it's always about the money. So how do you think that there, what's a solution that wouldn't be the government quote unquote, necessarily i mean is that what is that what you think the solution is that the government should be do, should be providing this or is as collective of professionals they could be you know they could get themselves as a more of a collective or a cooperative that's sure. like worker owned kind of i mean do, what do you have any thoughts on that yeah i i think and enrica mentioned it earlier too but i i i do think that step one for a lot of this stuff is some kind of universal health care some kind of medicare for all something where the actual access in and of itself you get rid of the economic barrier to access just period right right takes away the motivation or the need to actually create another for-profit entity that provides online therapy sessions or whatever better health right. is trying to do you just people can go if they just if they feel the need, you know, they don't have to think about financials before they go. They just fucking go. I think I think that's a big part of it. Uh, I, and aside from that, I do think that there is a place. Look, there there is a role for sort of cultural destigmatization of, of therapy. Yes. Um, I think we've done a good job of that in the last 10, 15, 20 years and just how much, you know, just anyone in Gen Z, like just ask anyone in Gen Z, they're going to be like, I go to therapy or like n- none of them are anti-therapy. Right. So that's whatever shifts have been happening there, I think are, are pretty good. 
Uh, yeah, but Tumblr does not count as therapy. I'm just, I'm <laughs> just throwing it out there. Scrolling, scrolling on Tumblr and TikTok does not count as therapy. I, I want receipts. <laughs> does shopping therapy get covered under Medicare for all? <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it should. You know what? In, in the, social, <laughs> thank, in the thank socialist you. utopia, all the stupid shit that I've bought, <laughs> bought myself or purchased, you know, just for for therapeutic reasons, should be a hundred percent covered. I'm telling you, know? you, we gotta we gotta push the Overton window. We gotta set really obnoxiously out there goals so that it doesn't seem so bizarre when we ask for something that's normal. Yeah, that's true. That's it's honestly true. I mean, the like left one of the reasons, doesn't do it. Well, what, what's your name? What's your name's trying a little bit? I mean, the Rebecca, what's her name? Um, Parsons or Chambers or, oh, or yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the socialist candidate who's been making the mm, rounds yeah. a lot, who's talking yeah. about thirty dollars per hour and breaking the people's or breaking the abandoned homes and occupy them. I'm all right. for that. Like that. Right. That to me sounds like a like a hell yeah. Like yeah, right. do that. Like uh, defund the police, except that that one somehow snapped back wrong. Well, the only, I mean, that's a whole, I could go I know. On. I'm sorry mm-hmm. I even brought it up. I'm sorry <laughs> I even brought it up. Back to what well, we no, were talking no. about. <laughs> I, I, I would love, I would love to talk about that. But I, 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 I agree. We, we do have to push for like really, um, like, yeah, expand the boundaries and, and possibilities of what we think is even plausible and acceptable right but i, but I, I if we I, just keep it if we just keep expecting they're gonna barely give us just enough so we better ask them for just enough so that they'll give us what we want but not too much because then they won't give us anything that's the wrong approach in any kind of negotiation oh, yeah, and yeah, nobody absolutely. on the left seems to be taking that lead i'm glad to hear there's somebody Nobody yeah. is obviously an exaggeration. I'm sure there are quite a few candidates right now out there in local races that are trying to do just exactly that. So, yeah, I, I and I don't want to disappear them. No, I, I guess maybe this is a, taking, and I, I don't know when you're going to wrap this up, but I, one thing that I am, I am, and I was kind of intimating it a little better, suggesting I am, I am kind of, worried about just though the pathologization of everything that that happens in society as as a mental yes. health issue you know yes. I, really yeah because yes. i i think it, i think on some level it's a again it's it's a cover it can be utilized i think so, i i the hard part about that framing is that of course there is a component of acknowledging that mental health um, issues and concerns can play a role in, mm-hmm. in, in people experiencing violent behavior. Absolutely. But we already know that people generally who experience mental health issues are way less likely to inflict violence on other people. And they're more likely to inflict violence on themselves. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Harm on themselves. So the, I feel like when we're looking at the these, um, when we're just throwing that label around, right? Like, oh, it's just it's a mental health crisis, a mental health this, mental health that, whatever. We completely, um, we're shaping the discourse and the conversation around addressing 
and facilitating individuals behaviors and individual care mechanisms uh-huh. versus like right just at first is one acknowledging that there are people who are rash like who are not suffering from mental health issues who completely experience um and express violent actions and behavior there are, there are people out here who just hate people let's just be real. right 100 percent. Um, and then and so we, we we don't acknowledge that piece of it and then we also don't acknowledge the structural factors that facilitate like people who do like the whole issue here right around like the mass shootings for me that's being completely disregarded is or not disregarded i guess but it's like gets downplayed with downplayed yes downplayed when we when we're just focusing on the mental health issues generally around this is the fact that like we have a crazy amount of guns y'all like yeah do and yeah more profit incentive behind that and yeah and i am like I am totally pro Second Amendment. I am like, I'm I'm here for it. I you know yeah. I if I had the means to have a gun, I probably would. But mm-hmm. like, I don't, I don't understand why. I don't know. I just I just I get I just get leery about when we're throwing that around, and I'm like, mm, I want people to be more specific sometimes. You know what I mean? I just want you are to get more into it. You know, it, it's it's almost like the bootstraps personal responsibility narratives that we uh-huh. get for a lot of other things, yes. right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Every time, remember when global warming during right. the Obama era was the right. thing, and he's like, you have to put less air in your tires, and you have to. You know, it's not by plastic. It's like, dude, fuck you. You you guys are right. the ones making the majority of all the you know the global warming effects. It's not a personal responsibility narrative here. And with those for profit incentives of if we address the mental health issues, then we could still just sell as many guns as we need to, and just keep selling exactly. those guns, right? Like that's exactly. you're, that's some real shit. That's some real talk. Exactly. What were you gonna say, Amanda? You, you, you oh, I was just gonna say I I totally agree with Rika that pathologizing everything as a mental health issue it just gives people another way to rationalize the mm-hmm. the crappy behavior that they're undertaking because they're miserable because mm-hmm. there's a lot yes. of miserable people right now yeah <laughs> and they don't right. even know they're miserable you know yes. Yes. Like, so, that, that, yes, Amanda, go, go. Yes. I, I mean, it's, that, it's, yeah. that's all, that's, that, that's all. And, and it, I mean, I've got a friend that, that whenever he says something contradictory to something he said before, he just blames it on the fact that he's a Gemini. <laughs> I'm like, you know, you can't blame everything on something, right? Oh, that is so Gemini, though. Personal neuroses as well, because this Virgo over here is quite (laughs) a type A one. So, (laughs) really, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have guessed in a zillion years. Yeah, not a million times around the Milky Way. God, that is so fucking funny. That is so funny. That's great, Amanda. What a lovely conversation. I, I I do look for the notifications through call-in are sometimes haphazard, and I can't tell if I there's something that's going live. But are you doing them on a regular schedule so I can put you on my calendar and make sure to, to come and listen to you? 
Yeah, I appreciate that, Amanda. Yeah, it's a. I do. I try to do these every Tuesday at. I was doing them at six fifteen p.m. I want to do them at six sixteen p.m. just to be different. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's because no one chooses times that are not like on the quarter or whatever. What so. what, to- what um, time zone are oh, you? This would be I'm Central Time. Okay. Um, so I, I might I've actually thought about like pushing it back a little bit too because I know that some people would still not be out of work on the on the West Coast by the time uh-huh. I, I do it, or it's like right after they get out of work or whatever. But uh, you know, like I. I'm just trying midnight. to do them every Tuesday evening. I know midnight would be fun. Um, <laughs> no, I would not. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> I vote against midnight. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I'm trying to do them on a regular schedule. Uh, okay. Well, you know, I'll I'll keep yeah, an eye. Yeah. I'll keep an eye peeled. I try to look at the calendar on the main on the main calling page because that's kind of how I've found some really interesting conversations. Is I just see what's live right now. Yeah, that's how I originally found this show. Okay, and then cool. again today. Wonderful. So I'm glad to know Tuesdays. I will keep an eye out for you. Okay, I appreciate it, Amanda. Thank you so much for calling in too. You've been Absolutely. a blast. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks. You too. <laughs> Good conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk to you later. Yeah. So, uh, Rita, you got any closing closing remarks? Any anything before we uh, end this one? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> No, I just, other than uh, total gratitude to you, Brian, for, for organizing this. I really appreciate it. Oh, but uh, it, the, the pleasure's all mine. And it's, uh, I'm always love it whenever you join in and, and give us your, just your wonderful insights. Um, yeah, like, uh, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say is, uh, I, you know, I, I believe in a, I believe in community a lot. I believe in developing and, and sort of, you know, like we were talking about last time, developing your street corner of people in Puerto Rico who are just like chilling and interacting with each other and, and, and being part of something greater. Uh, And I do feel like the degree to which people have these individual struggles where they need therapy or they need to work through them, or, you know, you have either, you can have, troubling thoughts or troubling like behaviors or, you know, like anxieties or whatever that, 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 you know, hold you back and, and, and interfere with your ability to, you know, bring the sort of positive self or, you know, this, this, this to, to, to really contribute to, a you know, some kind of cultivation of a community or cultivation of like the life that you want to live. And I, you know, I've been convinced that therapy is a good part of that for a lot of people. So we need to figure out ways to make that kind of healthcare accessible to everybody and accessible in a way that doesn't require them to themselves become a product. And that's why, that's what this episode's really about. Uh, and I know, you know, like, I know some of it is sort of disheartening to hear about the way that corporations, again, are trying to profit off of something they shouldn't try to profit off of. But I think, you know, if there's any takeaway that I have from this, too, 
it's that one we can we can actually inform ourselves and, and be informed about these things and not let people get away with it i mean look if you look at the the crisis text line they've already had to alter some of their practices because people were publishing stories about it that's pretty good uh but the other thing i take away from this is just like it's cool to hang out and talk to people who think the same way and remember that despite this shit going on that we can also create spaces to uh, cultivate that community too and hopefully this will be one of those spaces and hopefully it will be one of those spaces to where you know maybe five years from now we're all talking mad shit about how we stopped a for-profit healthcare system over the course of some Tuesday podcasts of us just bullshitting. Uh, and then we could tell our, you know, the next generations that we hiked uphill five miles each way to attend the Fred Hampton Inn Suites <laughs> to, uh, you know, talk about how we need to, uh, you know, dismantle the for-profit system. But anyway, you know, that's uh, that's just a dream. A dream, but, you know, maybe we can make it a reality. By the way, thank you for joining us again this week, and I hope you enjoyed your stay at the Fred Hampton Inn Suites. We'll see you next week. Bye.